to answer in this context, but if you were to ask a Roman Catholic from that time what the worst of the teachings of the Protestant Reformation was, I would be tempted to guess justification by faith alone would be something they would say, or something to do with Mary or transubstantiation. Um, But as you can probably guess from the context of bringing it up now in the sermon, Cardinal Bellarmine, who was around, around the time of Trent, said that it was assurance that was the worst of all Protestant teachings. The idea that we could be assured that we know that when we die, we will be accepted into glory on the merits of Christ alone. Looking at that, I want to remind you of what we were looking at in Colossians 2, and then I want to read through the section again. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5, we looked at last week, seeing Paul's great struggle, for I want you to know the great struggle I have for you, that their hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge which is Christ. Then in verses 6 through 15, we looked at the grounds of our assurance being Christ Himself, who He is and what He's done, all that we have in Him. In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Him, we are filled with that One who is filled with deity bodily. In Him, we are circumcised with a circumcision without hands. In Him, we are buried and raised in baptism. In Him, we are forgiven all of our trespasses. And in Him, all the rulers and authorities are disarmed and shamed. And in this, we have the grounds for our assurance in Christ. We're going on today in verses 16 through 23 to see that assurance is a precious treasure to be guarded. And that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, that full assurance is something based on the promises of God in Christ. So, please stand with me. And I'll read Colossians 2 into chapter 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the power of powerful working of God who raised you him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him therefore 
Let no one disqualify, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Please be seated. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would bless us this morning as we open Your Word. I pray that You would give us ears to hear, eyes to see the beauty that is in this text. I pray that we would behold the Gospel in a fuller way and that we would marvel at the wonderful, merciful Savior that we have in Christ. We love You and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, that Paul's struggle, his drive, his ambition is to give full assurance to the Colossians and the Laodiceans. And he want, he's encouraging them to be knit, uh, knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We see in verses 6-15 through 15, the grounds for that assurance and all the in-hymns that we looked at last week. Now, we come to verses 16 through 23 and we see how we are to guard that assurance that we have in Him. And we've seen this throughout the chapter already. It's kind of been peppered throughout. Uh, in verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's, he's eager to get to, I'm warning you against those that would take away what you have in Christ. Then in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Verse 16, we're going to see, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which is Old Testament uh, shadows of Christ. Verse 18, we're going to see, let no one disqualify you, insisting on and we're going to see a lot of mysticism, asceticism, worship of angels. Verse 20, if, you with Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, being the last of these warnings? And so what I, want, what I hope we will find this morning is we're to let no one rob us of our assurance, especially and primarily because of things that are not the Word of God. All of these things are not the Word of God. Requirement of adherence to the Old Covenant, 
requirement of adherence to these extra practices that might appear to be helpful and adherence to any human regulation by which one might be disqualified of being in Christ. So, let's begin with verses 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And I think we can see three parts to all of these warnings. There's a command, there's the standard, and then there's a reason the standard is false. So in this first one, there's a command. The command is, let no one pass judgment on you. That's what we're commanded. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Why? Because how they're passing judgment, the standard of their judgment is the particularities of old covenant worship. That which has passed away in Christ. That which has been fulfilled in Christ. And the reason the standard is false is, of course, they point to Christ and are fulfilled in Him. This is definitely a problem in the early church and I think wanes as an imminent threat as the church age continues. But in the early church especially, you saw that the Jews were requiring Gentiles to get circumcised. You saw that the Jews were requiring Gentiles to keep Jewish festivals. You saw that the Jews were requiring Gentiles to keep Jewish dietary laws as if participation in Christ required these things. And I just want you to turn with me to Acts 15 where we can see this play out in the first ecumenical council of the church. Acts 15. And you can see the problem in verse 5 of Acts 15. The problem is, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That's exactly what we're talking about. That they are making it necessary to participate in Christ, to be in Christ, that you keep everything that marked you as Jewish in the Old Covenant. But, as we read on, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And I don't know why I didn't see this before, but verse 10 is so helpful in this. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? With all of this, that's the issue. There's a yoke being put on believers that is not what Christ has commanded. It's a different yoke than the yoke of Christ that we see in Matthew 11, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we're seeing the reason Paul is so emphatic to continually warn to let no one disqualify you is because we're very eager to put yokes on ourselves or others to gain any part in what Christ has done for us because it's, it's a hard thing to be humble enough to say it's all of Christ and none of me, nothing in me at all. And while this particular problem may not be super common for us today. It is still around. And, I mean, you can find anything on YouTube. I found a guy on YouTube that um, was teaching that we are 
like he claims to be a Christian and he claims that we are supposed to keep the shadows of Christ and argued that, well, we keep the shadows because the shadows attach to the thing that makes the shadow. And so if you're going to be attached to that which makes the shadow, you have to keep the shadows. Showing a complete, total misunderstanding of what a shadow is. It's a fuzzy picture of the greater thing that is Christ who's fulfilled all these things. They're done. And we are no longer required to keep them. And so we're to let no one pass judgment on us because of these things. To let no one rob us of our assurance in Christ because we do not adhere to the particularities of the Old Covenant. It's a yoke that is not intended for us. We are not to bear it. Verses 18-20 through 20 of Colossians 2. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So, command, let no one disqualify you. The standard... It's, it's hard to say exactly what's going on here. Some say this is more pagan stuff in nature. Some say, no, this was particularly Jewish uh, twistings of their religion that's going on here. Um, I'm labeling it mysticism. Uh, it's both. Sure. Whatever. Um, the reason the standard is false is because it departs from Christ. And I love the way this is worded in, um, In verse 19, we are so tempted, part of this reason we're putting yokes on ourselves, part of this reason we're wanting to have more participation in the work of Christ, is because we're dissatisfied with ourselves. We want spiritual growth. We talked about um, laziness, uh, licentiousness, and lack of activism, lack of participation as things that we're very nervous about in evangelicalism today. We want to encourage everyone to be more spiritually disciplined, uh, more slaying of their sin, and more active. And we vex ourselves because we're not seeing as much of this as we want in ourselves. We want spiritual growth. And it seems that here, these practices were done to try and achieve spiritual growth. I can achieve spiritual growth by depriving myself of anything, asceticism, especially food, and causing pain to myself. Maybe um, these angels can provide me a shortcut to spiritual growth that I might not have otherwise. Visions are especially um, seen as a shortcut to spiritual growth. Here I'm given a special vision from God that I only have, that no one else has. And how, how can you not feel special <laughs> in a way? When I've got this vision that no one else has, and it's telling me something that you're all not privy to. And yet, the encouragement is that if you want a growth that is from God, it's not in these practices that are outside of Christ. It's not in this extra yoke that you might take upon yourself. It's holding fast to the head. That's how you get the growth that is from God. Not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And the image is pretty helpful. Like, how do we grow? We eat. Something comes through the head, through the mouth. Nourishment comes in through the body and out through the joints and ligaments. It's the same with Christ. Our growth comes from our head. It comes through Christ. And anything we do to try and short-circuit that 
is not going to be productive for one, which is, prim- which is what this verse is saying, but two, we're allowing people, once we buy into these shortcuts, buy into these ways that we might grow without God, then we're allowing someone to come to us with a standard and say, well, maybe you're not keeping it well enough, and we're going to actually disqualify you because you're not keeping this ex- these extra things, these extra practices. These things might seem to the people at the time to be an extraordinary means of grace. I can achieve means of grace through self-denial, pain applied to myself, worship of angels, visions. These are, I want extraordinary means of grace. I want something flashier than what God has ordained, which we call the ordinary means of grace. What are the ordinary means of grace? Scripture reading, memorization, taking in the word of God, Christian fellowship, worshiping with God's people on the Lord's day, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper that we partake in every week. When we sing together and you hear in your own hearing people proclaiming the truths of God, the people next to you, encouraging you with the words that we believe, prayer. And the difficulty is we want something snappier. (laughs) The ordinary means of grace very often are not quick or quick enough for us. They're not quick enough with that growth that we want and so desire. But if we want a growth that is from God, this is the means He's ordained of attachment to the head. When we come to verses 20 through 23, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now while I don't perceive many people in this room are tempted with going back to the old covenant particularities, And I don't know if many people in this room are tempted to worship angels or to seek visions. This is where I think we are tempted. Submitting ourselves to any human regulations, human precepts that we think make us better Christians or give us a growth that we so desperately desire. We see a command, do not submit to regulations. We see the standard as elemental spirits of the world and human precepts and teachings. The reason is there may be an appearance of wisdom in these things, but they're actually of no value at all. Especially on the growth piece, there is no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You might think that we can add all these human precepts that will help us to keep God's precepts, but that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And it, it was of no value in stopping them in the indulgence of their flesh. What are the elemental spirits of the world that's shown up a few times? This is also a debated concept. You can see in Galatians 4.3 that the elemental spirits of the world bring immaturity and bondage. In Galatians 4.9, you see that the elemental spirits of the world are turning back to weak and worthless bondage to observance of days and months, etc. 
Um, You see in verse 8, we've already read, it's philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and not according to Christ. And then we just read in verse 20 that it's regarding uh, regulations of things that perish with use. So, some want to see this as a reference to actual spiritual beings. Others see this as more of a uh, fundamental principles of the world kind of idea that um, there's a fundamental law, and some take that to be God's law. What I really want to emphasize is that these things are compared to precepts and regulations that are of no value to us. And either they are ordained by God and don't apply, or they are not ordained by God at all, and they are human precepts and teachings. When we consider disqualification, how we get this today... There's a lot of examples we can point to. We've talked about before in this church. It was very common decades ago that an added regulation would be no alcohol use. And it's, it's easy to point to things like that. Don't play with cards. Don't dance. These are all regulations we have made to try and bolster our spiritual lives. But the, diffi- but the problem is They don't arise from the Word of God. They are human precepts and teachings. Our confession is very helpful in this. In in our uh, confession, chapter 21, paragraph 2, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to His Word nor or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And we can see this in Scripture in James 4, verses 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so, coming through this, Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you because of this yoke that you want to take upon yourself. And here, we're told, do not submit to these regulations. Don't take this yoke upon yourself. For one thing, it's not helpful for the spiritual growth that you're seeking. And I think for two, and more in theme with what we're talking about today and last week, once you acknowledge this as a yoke that I can put on my shoulders, you're not going to meet it. Once you make a new law that you now have to keep, you're going to fail at it. And what happens when you fail at this law? You're going to question whether you belong to Christ. Because if I've associated this yoke with what is biblical Christianity, and I put it on myself and then I fail to meet it, the logical conclusion is, I must not be in Christ. Which is the whole reason Paul's getting at, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. Let no one take you captive by plausible arguments. We think of, like talking about last week, the evangelical fear of combating nominalism to such a degree that we have to bludgeon our people into submission. Hear these laws. Obey them. we got to fight laziness, licentiousness, lack of activism. We all want good fruit. We all want good works. But how do we encourage 
others to good works? How do we encourage ourselves to do good works? The question is, the Bible enough? Or do I need human wisdom, precepts, teachings? Do I need the Old Covenant particularities? Do I need worship of angels or visions? Do I need all of these other things that are outside of Christ? And to maybe put some more teeth on this, when Pastor Caleb and I, when we visit you guys, and we ask, how are you doing spiritually? We get the very natural response, probably the way I would respond. (laughs) Well, this is how I've done in my Bible reading this week. This is how I've done in my prayer this week. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy with it, but here it is. And um, maybe I've, I haven't really witnessed anybody in a while. But, you know, I, I want to and I'm trying. We, we come to this, put this yoke upon ourselves. Have I read my Bible enough this week? How many people have I witnessed to this past week? Have I prayed enough this week? It's this standard, it's this yoke that we're putting on ourselves. What is What does this mean? What is enough? Who gets to decide? When when I say, well, I haven't read my Bible enough this week, and this is a reason I'm looking down on myself, when I ask, how are you doing spiritually? We imply that there is an enough by which I would not feel downcast, and I would feel like I'm meeting the mark, and I'm meeting the standard. Um, Is one hour a day enough? How about two, or seven? I talk about witnessing. Am I off the hook if I witness to one person each week? Well, where do I get that number? (laughs) Like, why not up it to ten? George Whitfield says, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. Say, well, how many people have you spent a quarter of an hour with this week? Did you witness to them? Charles Spurgeon says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And then I could point my finger in your face and say, which one are you? Which one are you this morning? Are you a missionary or are you an imposter? Choose one. How many hours of prayer is enough? There's a famous Martin Luther quote. If I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot go without spending three hours daily in prayer. Well, Christian, how many days did the devil get the victory in this week? Based on your prayer life. Are you feeling the weight of the yoke that might come upon us once we start thinking in these ways and thinking in these terms? I could ask, how are you doing even now hearing this? Do you still have your assurance in Christ? Or are you feeling it slip through your fingers as I'm talking? And I hope that you're holding on to your assurance. Because the fundamental thing is your assurance is not based on these things. Your status in Christ is not based on all of these things. It's not faith plus Bible reading hours per week, faith plus how many people I've witnessed to in a week, faith plus how many hours of prayer I have in a day. It's faith alone. And that's it. We go to think about how effective we are at slaying sins in our life. And someone might come along with 2 Corinthians 13.5 and say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves. And you're, you're asked... Well, can you claim to really love God when you lose the battlefield of the mind regularly to keep your, th- your eyes and your heart pure? Can you really claim to trust God when you give in to sinful anxiety this week and every day? 
Have you snapped at your kids again? Do you even know the Lord? Would a born-again person do that? We're told, test yourself to see if you're of the faith. And then we test ourselves and find, I don't know. Because there's problems here. With lack of activism. We got a lot of, like, not necessarily here, and it's kind of by design here. We don't have a lot of church programs, but you know most churches do have a lot of church programs. And in order to get you excited to serve, you know, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Now, all right, Christian, now's your chance to serve. (laughs) You better get up and serve. What if I don't feel like serving? What if I can barely hold my life together right now? But we got church choirs. We got youth group programs and fundraisers. We got sound and media people. We got to fill all these positions, and we need Christians to do it. We got community programs that we want you guys out representing our church and showing the face of Christ out into the community. You need to be busy. Political activism. I told you guys last week, I can think just listening to everything I've listened to. There are people on the left and the right who will question your status in Christ based on your political activism. Do you hate this sin as much as I do? And are you active in fighting this sin as much as I am? And if not, are you even really a believer? We might look at the highly active person, the person who seems to be slaying sin in their life and seems to have it all together, and we say, now that's a real Christian. Look at him go. Look at all that he does. Look at all that she does. Man, what a wonderful, wonderful Christian. But when you say, now there's a real Christian, what you're betraying is, well, what, what is not that is not a real Christian, right? The one who is not active in everything, the one who struggles and loses many battles against his sin, the one who struggles to be in the Word regularly, be praying regularly, the one who struggles to share what Christ has done in them, and we're saying you're not a Christian, because that's a real Christian, and you're not that. In other words, we have many human precepts and teachings by which we evaluate ourselves by which we would disqualify ourselves, by which we would pass judgment on ourselves and others. And you are robbing yourself of your assurance when you do that. You're robbing yourself of what you have in Christ when you do that. Paul would have none of this. After telling us not to let anyone disqualify ourselves because of old covenant uh, shadows, not to let anyone pass judgment on us because we're not participating in the asceticism that other people think is so helpful, not to uh, submit to the human regulations that everyone thinks has an appearance of wisdom, but in reality is of no use. Where does Paul point us? Well, he doesn't point us inward. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he points us upward to Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The only if in this whole thing is if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, then all of these things are going to happen. There's no ifs after that. If you are in Christ, when He appears, you will appear with Him in glory. You will. There's no doubt about it. There's no contingency on that. If you are in Christ, you will be raised with Him in glory. We can 
apply our similar rubric here. There's a command. Put your eyes on things that are above. Put your, things, your, your eyes on things that are in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The standard is Jesus Himself. That the reason is we have died with Him. Our life is hidden with Him and in Him. When He appears, we also will appear with Him in glory. We can pause for a moment and just say, this is what the Word of God teaches. Do you believe it? And my exhortation to you is to cling to it and believe it. You don't need all these other human precepts and regulations that we want to come up with. We don't need all the mysticism that some want to offer as a shortcut to spiritual growth, to real spirituality. We don't need the shadows of the old covenant worship. All we need is Christ. And praise God, all we have is Christ. We talked about last week, again, this is why the in hymns are so beautiful. Because what we have in Him, we are filled in Christ. We are circumcised with a circumcision without hands in Christ. Remember, Physical surgery done with physical hands. Spiritual surgery done with spiritual hands. I can't do that surgery. Nobody can. And we're thankful that we have that in Christ. We are buried and raised with Him in baptism. We are forgiven all of our trespasses. The debt is canceled. The sins are nailed to the cross. Dead and buried and gone. The rulers and authorities are disarmed and shamed in Him. All of this should direct our eyes away from ourselves and direct our eyes on Him. Looking to Him for our assurance. So when you come to accuse yourself or others or disqualify yourself or others based on human precepts and teachings, your answer is not to try harder or to encourage the other person to try harder, especially with the idea of proving that I'm a real Christian. The idea of, I I question whether I'm in Christ. What I need to do is read my Bible more. And that will prove that I'm a Christian. If I can maintain this certain level of discipline, that'll prove that I'm a Christian. That'll prove it to me. Maybe if I read more, if I witness more, that will prove it to myself that I'm a real Christian. That's not where you're looking to prove it. Now, we know works are an evidence of the faith that is in you. We know that. We're not denying that. But if you want to go to where you prove whether you're a Christian or not, do you trust Christ? Do you believe what He said about who you are or who you were, do you agree with God about the problem that we have? That we're sinners, damned to hell, outside of Christ? And then do you agree with God about His solution? That it is Christ and Christ alone, and that in believing in Him, I have newness of life. If you believe that, you have assurance. Because the Bible directs our eyes to who Christ is alone, and what He's done alone, as our grounds for assurance. And so I could say, how are you doing spiritually? Well, are you trusting Christ? Are you resting in Him? Are you clinging to Him in confidence? Knowing that, yes, I'm a mess. Yes, you're a mess. We all know that. Whether we want to admit it or not. (laughs) We all know that. But are you trusting Him? Are you clinging to Him? Are you resting in Him? Is your confidence in Him? Then you're doing well. Then you're doing well spiritually. Someone might say, Pastor, won't people be lazy if they truly latch on to how free the gospel offer is and how amazing the grace of Christ really is? Nominalism is such a huge problem in the Western church, and it is a problem. But how are we going to fight nominalism if we give this kind of assurance? If you pay it, remember, we, get, we see this even in Colossians 2. 
this mysticism is not a means to growth. What growth is, is holding fast to the head. If I want a growth that comes from God, I hold fast to Christ. And we see at the end of Colossians 2, these human precepts and teachings by which I might try to drum you into shape, try to build that spiritual discipline, whip you into more activism, these things might have an appearance of wisdom, but they're really of no value in fighting the indulgence of the flesh. So the short answer is, how do we fight nominalism? Point to Christ. How do we encourage people to be more serious about their faith? Here's Christ. Look at him. Reflect on who he is and what he's done. Press in to who he is. That's how you fight nominalism. Unless you think I'm being idealistic. Um, We're going to hear from Hebrews 6 at the end of the service today, but I want to look at it now. This is very striking to me. Hebrews 6. Verses 11 and 12. We find our full assurance again. You saw Colossians 2 too. So, uh, chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So the author of Hebrews wants us to have this full assurance, is encouraging us to this full assurance, so that, in verse 12, you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. According to the author of Hebrews, to fight sluggishness, I'm giving you assurance. I'm telling you what you have in Christ and who you are in Christ. And that's going to fight sluggishness better than anything else. We can ask ourselves, do you believe that? Because we so often act like we don't. (laughs) If I want to fight sluggishness, I need to embrace asceticism. I need to punish myself. I need to embrace human precepts and teachings that will... And we think that it will make us uh, worked into shape. Build us up in discipline that we don't have. But these things do not give us a growth that is from God. I want to point at a few other things even outside of Scripture to show us that this really is what our faith is all about, even if we've not thought of it this way. Our confession speaks this way. Um, the confession in chapter 11, paragraph 1, says those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law, and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Our righteousness is all of Christ, none of ourself. This is the grounds of our assurance that we saw last week. But we can go to chapter 18 on assurance, paragraph 1. Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God in the state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him in this life, be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Now, 
Someone might hear that and say, well, there is such a thing as false assurance, and there is. If you look at Matthew 7, I think this is very instructive. You may already know where I'm looking. Matthew 7, Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And one thing I think is fascinating here is if we were to ask, them, ask these people prior to going to Christ, well, these people obviously feel assured in Christ. They obviously think that they belong to Christ. Well, why do you think so? Christ is essentially saying, why, why are you mine? How do you know you're mine? What do they point to? They don't point to Christ. They don't point to His promises. They say, well, Lord, we did many mighty works. We prophesied. We cast out demons. In other words, they're pointing to their works as the grounds of their assurance. And there is false assurance to be found there. There's pride and arrogance to be found there. There's reasons for boasting to be found there. But a true assurance comes from just resting on the promises of God alone. Knowing that He is a perfect Savior. That He is able to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified, as it says in Hebrews 10. The confession, again, in 18... Paragraph 2, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. And just to pause there, we have an infallible assurance. Why? Because it's not because I'm infallible. It's because my grounds for assurance is the Word of God, which is infallible. My grounds for assurance is Christ and His work, which is infallible. The Roman Catholic Church declared anathema those who would claim to have an infallible assurance. We confess we have an infallible assurance. Because the Word is infallible, because our Savior is infallible, I have an infallible assurance. And I trust His promises. To think about what we sing so much points to this reality. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. It's on 179 in your hymnal if you want to look at it. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take Him at His Word. Just to rest upon His promise. Just to know, thus saith the Lord. What's He resting in? What the Bible says about who Christ is and what He's done. The sweetness of trusting in Jesus isn't now I have an ability to work harder and justify myself. The sweetness of trusting in Jesus is that I have rest. And the Word of God says so. And I can bank my whole life and my eternity on that. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I've proved Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust Him more. And that's our battle. That we would have more grace to trust. That the Word of God really is true. It really is that simple. It really is that gracious of an offer. And there really is nothing required of me. And can it be on the next page, 180, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. 
alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? We sing this all the time, and yet we so easily depart from it when we want to put a yoke on ourselves, when we want to take shortcuts to spiritual growth that really are no shortcuts at all. I am not saying, don't worry about not reading your Bible. I'm not saying, don't worry about not witnessing. Don't worry about not praying. Don't worry about not putting sin to death. Don't worry about not pursuing wisdom and avoiding foolishness. We can look at Colossians. When we go past what we've just read, right after the assurance in verses 1-4, through put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? goes on to talk about put off sinful practices. Put off wickedness. And then we're going to get put on what is good and holy and righteous. But for a very simple math class, two comes before three. Three comes after two. What am I getting at? The assurance comes before the works. The grace comes before the works. Your grounds of assurance in Christ come before put off and put on. I am saying you are saved by faith alone and you don't have to prove that you're a Christian by working hard as much as we are tempted to do so. I am saying that resting in Christ is fundamentally opposed to working in any way to justify ourselves or prove anything to ourselves. We work out of love and thankfulness for what the Savior's done. It is a natural product of the one who's looking on Christ and beholding Him for the wonderful Savior that He is. There are many popular Calvinist preachers today that will be confusing on this. You're going to hear language like that conflates faith and faithfulness, faith and obedience, faith and repentance in terms of slaying sin. But if we say, I'm saved through faith alone, I am not saved through faithfulness alone. I'm not saved through obedience alone. I'm not saved through repenting in the sense of slaying my sins alone. Otherwise, I'm not saved. I can't meet that standard. I have many sins that I struggle to repent of. I am so weak in my obedience in so many ways and so often not faithful. But the gospel is that Christ is faithful and that his obedience is credited to us. By resting in Christ this way, I am freed to obey. I am freed to serve. I am freed to grow in good works. Those things will happen for the one who is resting in Christ and looking upon Him and resting in Him. And yes, I quoted people. I quoted George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon. I don't, I don't think that they would take those quotes in the way that I was using them. <laughs> I was using them to, to accuse and using them to try and show how our, our, our uh, assurance is taken away. I don't think they would take it that way. And especially with Spurgeon, I have a wonderful quote here. We count it no presumption to say that we are saved, for the Word of God has told us so in those places where salvation is promised to, Christ, to faith in Christ. The presumption would lie in doubting the Word of God. And so with the Roman Catholic Church and many, too many Protestants today, the idea is it's presumptuous to say that I am assured of my salvation in Christ and it encourages sinful behavior. We are asserting the opposite. That it is presumptuous of them 
to deny what Christ has clearly said, to deny what the Word plainly teaches. And it is not presumption to believe it and hold fast to Christ and rest in Him. Reading just again to remind us, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And we could sing with the hymn, Oh, for grace to trust him more. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for grace to trust You more. We pray for grace to take You at Your Word. We pray for grace to to rest upon Your promise to know that all we need is thus saith the Lord. That for all who are in Christ, when Christ is revealed in His glory, so will we be also. Lord, I pray that You'd bless Your people as we meditate on these things. In Jesus' name, Amen.